This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mohammed Fairuz. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. And we are connected. And Chris is ready to say hello to you. Oh, great. As soon as you sit down, I'll just, I'll get you on the mic and then I'll go get the water break. Okay. I'm going to turn my phone off. I would love that. You can put it on an airplane mode or power it down. That's the best for us. Good. There we go. All right. And if you can pull right up to the table perpendicular, it's going to help me position the mic properly. Hello. Hello. Mohammed. Hi, Krista. Yes. Hi. I'm so sorry. I'm running a few minutes oh, late here. Oh, don't worry. We were we were just out. talking just about how it's Im- impossible to ever get anything exactly on time in New York. I'm so sorry. No, no. Don't worry at all. We're fine. We have all the time in the world. Um, so glad you're there. It's good to meet you. It's great to meet you. Um, do you have any questions of me before we start? No, no, I did my homework, too. Okay, good. <laughs> good. And I just want you to be, I'm just going to talk to you about things you are thinking and writing about all the time. So, um, And great. The, the great thing about this format is, um, uh, have you done ISDN interviews before? This. Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. So I find it very intimate in its way. And um, and the great thing about, you know, we'll, we'll talk for um, somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes. And it, if you... You know, if I say it's anything a, stupid, you can edit it. Well, out. exactly, exactly. But you won't. But 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 I was going to say it's a it's a real conversation, so it doesn't have to be completely linear. If if you, if you want to go back to something, um, if you want to retrace some ground, you have a, we can just pick up again. Sure. Okay, um, Chris, how are we doing for? All right, tell us. Yeah, tell it. Tell us uh, something mundane, like what you had for um, lunch. Oh, I, you know, I, I, I actually literally have been back to back today. So I was, I, as soon as I realized about one thirty, I ran across town. So I'm now catching my breath and uh, got here right, right. Um, well, not right on time. I, I won't give myself too much credit, but as long as we're testing the mic, I'll just say, well, you know, I'm right on time. And um, do you have what you need? Chris? <laughs> Okay. Yes, he's <laughs> nodding his head. Okay. Well, then let's just let's just plunge in. Um, and if you need to stop and take a breath, just do it. Um, that we can edit out. Um, well, so I'm just really happy to be talking to you, and I've so enjoyed kind of immersing in your music and also in your writing and thinking. Um, and I, I really think I want to, you know, I'm in conversation with you today as much as a writer and thinker as a as a composer. And so, let's see, you were born in 1985. You grew up mostly in New York? Yeah. Um, actually, um, I spent 10 years in, in London. I spent, I think, cumul- uh, cumulatively about six, seven years in, in the Middle East and about 10 years in New York. So um, I, I, I think it's, it's pretty evenly divided. Yeah. So when were you in the Middle East? When did you live in the Middle East? After you were grown or as you were growing up? As I was growing up, mm. and uh, also, um, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, for me, these terms are really relative because I'm, you know, uh, of a certain age, and, and I can't, I, I, most of my life, when you're 29, most of your life 
up to the point of being 29 is spent growing up. Still growing human up, beings, yes. Yeah, they grow up until they're about 20, 21 maybe. You know? <laughs> right. And I, I, I still feel like I'm growing up. I, I hope I'm still growing up. I hope that we grow until the day we die. Um, but uh, And then afterwards as well. But I think that... Uh, yeah, I mean, um, as far as, uh, you know, seeing what I saw in the Middle East was absolutely indelible, uh, made an indelible imprint on my on my process maturing and growing, both spiritually and and uh, as a person. So so where where did you live? Because, I mean, the Middle East is a big, <laughs> it's a big label. It's a big place. Where were you? It's a big area of land. Yeah. Um, and it's actually... A very interesting area of land because saying that something is about the size of the United States or about the size of Texas or about the size of Rhode Island Mm. is all good and well. But when you have an area like, for example, Jerusalem, uh, Israel, Palestine, it's about the size of what Rhode Island, uh, where you have many simultaneous perspectives of history happening there. All at the same time, you realize that it's actually a very dense place. So, um, you know, I spent a good amount of time in the Gulf, uh, in the uh, UAE, in Saudi Arabia, in uh, those countries that are now developing very quickly. And then I spent a good amount of time in Syria. Um, And actually, I was uh, uh, interested to see, and I took the bus, actually. I remember taking the bus at one point from, it was an insane trip from from Abu Dhabi all the way in the east to Beirut all the way in the west. Uh, and this is a bus mm-hmm. ride that takes a couple of days. You when, know. when was this, roughly? When? Oh, this was when I was, this was about, I would say this was when I was about 19. Okay. I mean, I think my parents were very nervous that I did this because, the, you know, traveling by bus is not, you know, luxurious. I yeah. mean, it's, it's like, you know, whether it's the Greyhound or whatever this bus was called in the Middle East. It's, so, it's, no, it's, I mean, not that long ago, early 2000s. Early 2000s, uh-huh. that's right. Uh-huh. And, and, um, and you see a lot. I mean, you see a lot just making the journey. Uh, one thing that surprised me that, you know, I always knew about looking at the map was how close uh, Damascus was to Beirut. Mm. Uh, And it never really sunk in until I took the bus from Damascus to Beirut. And we were there in... in, I mean, we could have made the journey in an hour, of course. You know, the thing about... The thing that that, that, that expands the journey tremendously are all of these terrible checkpoints everywhere. Right, right. Okay, well, we'll 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 circle back to that. Um, I, you know, I read somewhere that you were, you began composing music at a very early age, and and I read somewhere that you were setting the poetry of Oscar Wilde to music at the age of seven. Um, is that right? I. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's actually. Uh, I have to some someday. I actually have to publicize this song that I did. It, it's it's a song on a poem by Oscar Wilde that is called um, The True Knowledge, and it's a beautiful poem. Mm. Um, and I, I, I took a stab at it when I was seven, uh, and uh, I didn't, I have to admit, I didn't understand the poem at all. Uh, I, I now <laughs> As you know understand it now. <laughs> yes. I now know in retrospect. And then, you know, of course, you know, I realize that when I'm, when I'm 80, I might be saying, well, I 
didn't understand that poem I was setting at 29 in retrospect. Um, But, um, you know, I gave another go at sort of uh, trying to revive it. I have it in a sort of um, uh, semi-acceptable form because I I, I revisited it in, I I think, 2002 or something as an early piece and tried to sort of um, tried to fix it. Uh, And I've since stopped doing that because I realized that as a composer, uh, we leave very important traces of who we are Mm -hmm. spiritually in the pieces that we Mm. compose. Uh, And so it's it's actually best not to tamper with who you were 10 years ago, to be who you are today, accept and and perhaps even try to love who you were 10 years ago and be kind to yourself, uh, but also look forward to who you want to be in a year. Oh, that's lovely. I, I I wonder if, you know, if I asked you if you, um, you know, it seems like you began composing at an early age and you were also always, and you've used this language of being obsessed with text. And I, I just wonder, you know, how do you, where do you trace the kind of source or spark of these intertwined passions for you in, in the background of your life, in your early life? Well, I think that one has to be obsessed with text in order to take it seriously. I mean, uh, it, it, obsession is is such a healthy thing. Uh, and for a composer, for an artist, for a human being, for a poet, uh, for a diplomat, being obsessed with something is absolutely essential mm. to... Um, it's, it's absolutely essential to getting what you want to get done, done. Uh, and I guess uh, I should say something about that because whenever I look back uh, at um, innovative personalities, yeah. whether it's yeah. um, Mozart or Steve Jobs or um, you know Shakespeare or you know Benazir Bhutto, uh, whoever it is, they they always seem to have that very you know, when you're reading about them, when you watch them speak, when you, you know, when you listen to their music, whatever, when you read their speeches, you always register a sort of obsession. There's yeah. something obsessive about what they're, you know, uh, committed to. Um, and I think it makes for an extraordinary, um, at least an extraordinary commitment uh, in what you're um, doing. So being obsessed with text, Krista, is about diving into the text, accepting the text, opening your emotional pores to the text, and not simply treating the text as a dead intellectual document. You're also, uh, in, a, in a way, accepting it as part of your life. Right. And, and, right. and that, that may be something as old as Dryden or Shakespeare or as new as, you know, uh, Muhammad Hanif. It's mm. It's imperative to be obsessed. And 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 was there um a spiritual background to your childhood that that also reinforced or kind of helped plant um your love of text and you know I just there's such a there's such a there's a this poetic aesthetic sensibility um kind of a, f- a fulsome well-rounded complete um sensibility that's there in your work that that I actually also find very much in the fabric of Islamic um, spirituality, 
Um, and I just wonder, was that was is that something that you drew on as well? I, I have no idea. I haven't read anything about you know whether there was that kind of religious background to your life. Well, you know, I've always been. Um, I've always tried to define myself, uh, or or not try to define myself as a as sort of a humanist or a, you know a secular human being, whatever mm-hmm. that may mean in two thousand fifteen. Um, but I think that you know one thing that's very important to to remember is that all of these different strands of you know. We live in a very difficult and tricky time. I mean, we live in a time where politicians and diplomats rightly say that church and state needs to remain separate or it needs to be kept separate. Uh, In other words, religion or spirituality and politics need to be uh, separated from each other. In the contemporary Middle East, we see problems when religion starts to interact with politics in a in a in a in a negative way. I mean, yeah. uh, some of the more sort of very uh, uh, some of the some of the less inspiring trends of the Muslim Brotherhood and so on, all the way to uh, the so-called uh, Islamic State, have to do with uh, when people's narrow interpretations of religion, uh, and in this case, Islam start to interact with their political motivations, which are, by definition, selfish. Um, and But what's interesting to note is that Islam is actually a very selfless religion, mm-hmm. and it's actually a very progressive religion. In fact, of the three Middle Eastern uh, monotheisms that are the largest, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, uh, what Muslims call the people of the book... Um, Islam is the youngest of the three. Right. And in many ways, if you compare the Quran to the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the most poetic. It's the least... Uh, exactly, yes. Yes. Specific. And I, the, you know, and I guess that's what I'm... You know, what I'm pointing at is, you're right, I mean, what you're describing is the most visible and certainly the most highly publicized uh, image that we have of Islam right now. But I find in your art and in your the way you talk about it, you know, th- these um, aspects, it's, also, it's Arabic culture, right? But it's, it's also as it very much embedded in Islamic culture, the, you know, these winsome things like connections between spiritual life and love poetry. Um, or even you've talked about... Um, you know that that, that you that you think you, you, that calligraphy that, that, that for you there's kind of a resonance between this this treasured art of calligraphy when you're writing musical notation. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel like you kind of you kind of embody this aesthetic sensibility that's not so well known about Islam. Well, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm very saddened that it's not so well known mm-hmm. because, in a way. Um, you know, uh, the Quran itself uh, literally translates as the recitation, the yeah. reading. Right, right. Um, and that is not so far away from the idea of the recital, the musical recital, uh, the poetic recitation. What's extraordinary about poetic recitation, whether it's happening in a very public setting like a poetry reading 
or a very private setting like, you know, your living room, is that when you sit down and you recite poetry, time stops. Something very special is understood to be happening. And uh, people accept that. And, and, and they listen. And if you go on the streets of Damascus or Cairo or Beirut, or at least when I was there, uh, people would read poetry in the cafes at night, recite right. poetry. Right. Not even read it, but recite it from, from as, as that beautiful expression has it, by heart, uh, from memory. Um, and peop, other people responding to the poetry yeah. would weep they would cry. They would, you know, uh, they'd lose it. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, about an hour outside of Karachi in Pakistan, um, the fakirs still come and they sing old Sindhi legends, old Sufi legends. People come and they, uh, they take it in and, and you see people in the audience absolutely losing it and, and opening up the emotional pores, becoming more vulnerable. And I think there is a mysticism, and there is a great part of of, um, uh, of uh, Islamic culture uh, that is uh, maybe not perceived. But you know, Krista, peace never makes headlines. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, a killing always makes headlines. I mean, I, I can think that there were, you know, in in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. I'm sure that there were many. I, I know that there were many. There are many beautiful people who mm-hmm. live their lives and do wonderful things and do good deeds on a daily basis. And yet, unfortunately, the majority of the country and the majority of the world will only remember this town for now uh, as the place where that one man went in and shot all of those poor children right. in the school. So it's it's very. Um, Unfortunate. Peshawar in Pakistan uh, has a history that goes back thousands of years. A poet, they've produced some of the great poets. Yeah. Uh, they've ha- it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. And yet now it will be remembered, at least for the current age, um, as the place where 132 children got massacred by the Taliban. Yeah. But, you know, there were those 132 children and their parents and hundreds and thousands and millions more who are just going to school, who are just learning. And humanity is absolutely stuck in a quagmire. They're not going to get beyond their current state of impasse right. until they realize that the majority of the people in the world just want to get by and do the best in their lives and provide for themselves and their loved ones and love and be happy. The majority of people in the world have the same aspirations that you or me have. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll circle back through that. Um, I'd like like to talk about your album, um, Follow Poet. Do you say album? <laughs> Discussing this with musicians. I'd say album, yeah. me. I think I think everybody's mm. still saying album. Um, I think in Follow Poet, this this latest album, it's, you've you've brought into relief. You've really worked with and played with really this this passion that you have for the interplay. And I, and I'm not even sure this is going to be precise as I say it, but between you know text and music. Um, 
you know, and it's so striking. You start the CD actually starts with a speech of John F. Kennedy, um, a speech that I don't know that it's how, how famous it is. He was receiving an, uh, an honorary degree at Amherst College in 1963, October 26, 1963, which would have been shortly before his death. Is that right? He died in 1963, didn't he? Yes, yeah. Um, and you wrote of this speech, and I'm sure we'll play this. Um, I'm sure we'll play this for people to hear and also how it then moves into the music. Um, You've written, you've written of that speech, the speech is a kind of music by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you've said that you've been challenged for people asking you, why can't you just write music for the sake of writing music? <laughs> <laughs> and I want to I just, you know, draw you out on, on and how you respond to that and how you think about what you do that is different, that is resisting that, right, just for the sake of music alone. Well, I mean, Follow Poet uh, as an album is uh, something I'm very, very proud of. And it's not my accomplishment. It's the accomplishment of many, many people who put their blood and sweat and tears and intellectual energy and acuity into creating something that I think is uh, uh, meaningful. Uh, When I was still in the early phases of, of developing this album, I was talking to my friend, uh, and uh, actually the CEO of the company, Elizabeth Sobol, about the idea of the interplay of text and music. And text not just being, when we talk about the interplay of text and music, we often talk about poetry and music. What comes first, the music or the text? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an old question, you know, that is asked in in uh, sort of the forums of academic minutiae. But Actually, text is so much bigger than that. Right. We're also, we're also so often talking about lyrics, right? And that's quite different from what you're just talking about. Well, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, historically, I mean, if you look at the sort of 19th century art songs, what we call leader, leader yeah, can right. be understood as um, sort of 19th century versions of Beatles songs, right? right. They're all the, the lyrics of these leader, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of leaders, uh, are um, all uh, just uh, sort of poems. Mm-hmm. So these, I mean, I'm sure that when we talk about the classics uh, now or in 50 years from now or whatever, we're going to see the lyrics as poetry. I mean, the Beatles' lyrics are right. poetry. Right, uh, right. Freddie Mercury's lyrics are poetry, absolutely. Um, and actually, if you write them down, you recite them, you study them. I mean, they've, they become – and some poems become indelibly linked forever uh, and married to the music that they're created with. So – and then they become lyrics. Uh, but in any case, I, I think that uh, we expanded the idea of text. I mean, that the idea of text and music often is lyrics, poetry. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. But text can be – a speech given by a political leader, a text can be, um, you know, uh, a road sign, for goodness sakes. It can be anything. I mean, text can be anything and it can acquire tremendous meaning. And goodness knows, I mean, if you're traveling in the Middle East, uh, there are road signs that are poetic in their in their weight and their heaviness, their meaning to people. What uh, do you mean? Emotional. What would an example well, be? 
I think that, you know, um, a, a road sign leading to the old city of Jerusalem uh, yeah. has a lot of semblance, a lot of meaning. Uh, a, a sign uh, outside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Yes. Uh, I mean, Mahmoud Darwish and Yehuda Amichai wrote two poems that are um, uh, separate from one another, developed separately. And then they are Palestinian and Israeli. Palestinian and Israeli poets mm-hmm. writing simultaneously about the same place and using the phrase, every rock is sacred. Every stone is sacred. And of course, that brings up semblance of the Psalms and, um, you know, uh, that, that every, every, every one of your stones is sacred. Yeah. So actually, a stone can contain within it, a rock can contain within it poetry. Um, and so we started to sort of go back and forth about the idea of how to interweave um, text and music. And I think that starting with John F. Kennedy's address at Amherst College, which is absolutely musical, in it he says, he talks about the role of the artist. He says, where power corrupts, poetry cleanses. The idea of poetry as a cleanser. Um, He actually concludes in the end that he sees little of more importance to the future of our country and our civilization than the full recognition of the role of the artist. I think it's absolutely... Uh, not coincidental, uh, as an aside, that this is the same president who said, let's put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Hmm. Um, And so uh, we realized that actually including JF, why why shouldn't we include JFK's voice at the beginning of the album? It's one of the most recognizable voices in history, the declamations of his voice, the musicality of his voice. Uh, the words that he's speaking. Um, And we decided to do that and then go from there to the music and come back to his voice uh, and have only also a musical evocation of another political speech half a world away by Anwar Sadat. And that's the great speech that he delivered uh, when he made in the Arabic tradition and Arabic history we know it as the longest journey that Anwar Sadat ever took in his in his life, the well-traveled diplomat and politician, uh, the one of the most seasoned statesmen in the world, who traveled all over the world, thousands of miles. We think that the longest journey he ever took was that twenty-eight minute journey hmm. from Cairo to Jerusalem, right, to deliver that speech to the Israeli Knesset. So yeah, and so Anwar Sadat president of Egypt. He was assassinated in 1981, before you were born. Um, I, you know, I I, I think what's interesting about Sadat, who um, many people of your generation, you know, won't remember and might not even know about, um, and perhaps in the immediate history following his death, appeared a tragic figure. It's very intriguing to me that for you, um, he's kind of a guiding light. And I see Sadat's legacy um, having this living resonance in your work. I mean, here's some language from that speech to the Israeli Knesset, which I'd never heard before. You know, fill the earth and space with recitals of peace 
turn the song into reality that blossoms and lives. And what a what a reflection, you know, that is of of again this this approach you've taken to the interplay between text and music. There's music in his words somehow. Absolutely, and music in 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 his words, just as there is music in John F. Kennedy's words. Yes. And you're absolutely right that these figures who appear to the people of their generation as tragic figures become guiding lights, um, you know, to the to the to the people of the next generations and the generations to come. And you know, Krista, it absolutely proves that it proves that the violence that the violence that some people espouse, the violence that some people believe is the solution doesn't work. It's absolute proof of the fact that this violence simply does not work. John F. Kennedy's words that open follow poet, his voice is one of the most recognizable voices uh, in the history of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. We didn't need to introduce him as John F. Kennedy. Most people listening, many people listening, will immediately, just the the sound of his voice, identify. Can I also say, Um, I mean, that was brought home to me, the, the... the recognizability of his voice was brought home to me in hearing that that his voice at the top of your of your album. So interesting. Absolutely, it's mm-hmm. it's 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 really uh, interesting to note that the people who attempted to silence him, um, the minority of people. I mean, the, the, he had a he had a nation behind him. He had the support of the of 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 much of the world. Uh, and yet there were a few people who decided that violence was the way to silence him. I mean, that he must be assassinated. And those people who attempted to make that point are forgotten. I, don't, I would not recognize their voice if I no. heard it on an album. Uh, and yet John F. Kennedy's voice still resonates. Uh, I think that, you know, John Wilkes Booth attempted to uh, well, he assassinated Lincoln. Lincoln's words and his message still resonates 150 years now after the end of the Civil War. Um, and we've forgotten. I mean, uh, there's a great line in Stephen Sondheim's musical Assassins uh, where the balladeer, the spirit of America, says, um, while it's speaking to John Wilkes Booth, says, while Lincoln, who got mixed reviews, because of you, John, now gets only raves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's actually... And then, of course, you know, it drives the point uh, home that this is a minority of people. I mean, Sadat, it took, what, five, six people of, who eventually end up to be associated with Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood who si- wanted to silence him by uh, assassinating him at the military parade... And yet his voice becomes the guiding light, as you say, for a new generation of people who believe in peace. Mm, you know, and there was, yeah. a, there was I, would, I also just want to say one more thing. Yeah. A, there was a million people out in Raulpindi for Benazir Bhutto, cheering her on. And there were only a handful of people with suicide vests right. and guns. 
and they attempted to silence her. And what do we remember now? She was apparently they attempted to silence her in 2007. Many years later, we remember time, justice, and the forces of history are on our side. You know, you're making a straightforward point um, that great and important words survive. I don't, though, think it's something we are very self-aware about. I mean, you know, just mentioning Lincoln, you know, or or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? And how much the words of those two figures who were also assassinated um, resonate in the early 21st century. Um, it's really... It, um, what you're also... What you're also getting at is something, another, a related passion. Um, I mean, you, you know, you've talked about, you know, you, you said, in both our poetic and diplomatic lives, I would argue for a broad return to a love for illustrious language. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that that's connected to this kind of dual passion that you have for poetry and statecraft. So so say some more about that, about about illustrious language. It's out of fashion, I would say, <laughs> to put it mildly. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that it's uh, um, probably, uh, you know, um, philology, which literally translates as the love of language, mm. uh, used to be well studied and, and um, is now probably the least sexy and with a discipline in the university. I mean, it's it's become... Uh, it's become less appreciated. Uh, a cu- uh, you know, a culture has emerged of, of um, I, I don't want to say instant gratification or immediate gratification, but certainly a culture has emerged where uh, people want to see immediate results. Uh, and... Uh, we we've come to value you know when we're doing business or when we're whatever transaction we come we've come to value immediate results yes what we forget is that results are not always good they can be they can be bad mm-hmm. and usually the immediate results that we push for with abandon you know um let's get a result no matter what it, it tends to be the less desirable result mm. and nowadays we have this all of this phraseology like walk the walk don't talk the talk or talk is cheap <laughs> and all of that <laughs> yes, stuff right. and it's like yeah okay yeah words can be uh cheap and 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 they can be empty uh, but they can also uh, prevent people from marching to war. They can also uh, prevent millions of people from dying. I mean, a treaty that may not be the most immediate result, uh, but may take months or years of negotiation and careful balancing, may prevent a world war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very interesting that, uh, yes, we're fixated on the immediacy of, of returns uh, without necessarily taking into consideration that the returns may be less desirable if we rush to them. Um, you know, you often reflect on um, yourself as a member of your generation. 
um, I somewhere I saw you refer, uh, referred to as a po- post millennial Schubert. I didn't realize, huh. <laughs> but but I was more the Schubert part. I get the post. I didn't realize that we'd moved to post millennial. I'm not neither. sure what all these labels mean, but but there is something about uh, a turn of century generation of which you are a part, and um, what you're what you're describing now about this suspicion of the rush to results. Um, a new kind of openness to to language that makes something new possible, um, to language that reorients. I feel like that's what you're describing. Do, do you well, feel gonna, like that's a general? Sorry, go on. What were you going to say? I'm going to say something that yeah. you may think uh, you may think me crazy to say, but I believe that the future is extremely bright. I believe that the future is hopeful, and I think that this generation is absolutely committed to making the world a better place, and I think they have the means to do it, and I think that if the world does not become a better place by the time that I'm 50 or 60, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We have all of the resources, we have the will, we have the drive, uh, we have a, an unparalleled vision uh, uh, on uh, an, well, an expanded field of vision, an expanded perspective on history. Yeah. We have the knowledge of the world at our fingertips. Uh, I mean, and 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 sometimes even me being twenty nine years old, I'll look at a younger person, you know, glued to the iPad or the iPhone and and going through it, and all I can say in my heart and in my mind is I hope that these people, these young people, are using th- these devices for good and not for evil. I hope that they're using this to glean knowledge, to connect with other people, to build bridges. Uh, to break down the barriers of human communication and understanding. I think the resources available to us are unparalleled and light the way to, to I think, a great future. I, I have to say that I share from a perspective of being, you know, not quite twice as old as you, but almost um, absolutely share your confidence and hope um, in this generation. But, but I, I I think something that's also characteristic of of what is most hopeful now is also uh, reflected in you. I mean, yes, you have this 21st century world of perspective and tools, um, but you're also very attentive to, um, as you say, guiding lights, right? Uh, you know, looking back for wisdom as well, looking for prophetic, poetic voices, taking elders seriously. You know, I really see this in the way you you lift up John F. Kennedy or Anwar Sadat or Seamus Heaney, um, Yeats. Um, that, I feel, is part of the power that your generation is claiming as well. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do um, think I know what you're talking about. I I think that um, I think we have a long way to go with that um, because I think that um, you know uh, I, I guess the, the the trope that needs to be 
that needs to be repeated is education, education, education. And uh, I, you know, I think that uh, it's absolutely going to open doors. I think that we take this for granted often. Uh, I think you need to sit down and actually reorient the humanities into the center of the core of of our outlook on the world if we're going to get back to that and I and I think that lifting the elders is 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 an important um it's an important element of any successful tribal society mm-hmm. and all human society is tribal we are tribal creatures by nature um and mm. I hope that we get there. I think we have. I think we have. Um, I think we have a ways to go. I think that also, by the way, um, when I was looking at the news reports of those children um, who were uh, massacred in in Pakistan by the Taliban. A time came when I, I actually couldn't stand uh, to, um, to 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 watch the news reports, to hear the news reports. I mean, I'm an auditory person as a composer, so I turned down the volume, and from time to time, I would look up at the television and see the numbers going up and up and up. And it was one of the most horrific things. And I eventually just turned off the television entirely, started, because I wanted to know what happened. I started to read about it. And I found that Mohammed Hanif, a Pakistani writer and journalist, had experienced a very similar thing. I was reading his report. But the point that he made that was very poignant was that it showed the commitment of the young people in these very risky circumstances, to going to school, hmm. to being educated. And we saw that also in Malala Yousafzai. She went to school. She was shot in the face by these barbarians. And what did she do next? As soon as she healed, she went back to class. So hmm. the commitment to education, especially when you tell people you can't have it, is remarkable. Yeah. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. I mean, it's it's the the drive, the drive to I mean, uh, to 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 face bullets, literally face bullets, and go to school, is remarkable. So I'm optimistic, absolutely, that we will raise our elders, uh, because I'm optimistic that education means um, an awful lot. Uh, to people, especially those who have been up to now deprived of it. And, um, you know, the fact that your reference points um, include as, as relevantly, you know, for you, what's happening in Pakistan as what is happening in any American city um, is also, you know, so that's that's the, also the perspective and the worldview that you bring. That is your generation, but it's also who you are as an Arab American, um, as somebody who's lived in many places. You know, one thing you you pointed out, I think, very, uh, in very insightfully, is that 
and I, th- I think these are words of yours, maybe from Huffington Post, that the Middle East has been a vital theater for the world's dealings and concerns since the very start of human civilization. But what you circle back to again and again, from the perspective of an artist, you know, a citizen, is that what's changed now is that it's not possible for the rest of the world to disengage from what happens in the Middle East. No, and I and I think the Middle East may have been the only theater historically that has been impossible to disengage from. Uh, of course, you know. But you could pretend. You could pretend that it was far away. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to do trade between Asia and yes. Europe, historically, you couldn't pretend. But, okay. Um, for, or you could find a different route, but it was not easy. It was very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, of course, we're all interconnected. Yeah, we're, I mean, let me say, uh, I think Americans could pretend. Let me be more precise. <laughs> oh, well, in yeah. that case, we're not talking about history. We're talking about, you know, yeah. uh, the last blip in time. Right. Uh, right. I mean, it's, America right. is a very young country. Yeah. Um, but I think that, of course, the world is all inextricably interconnected now. Um, we have, um, uh, you know, what happens in Ukraine, what happens in Syria, what happens in Egypt cannot be uh, disassociated from the from the rest of the world. Of course, I'm concerned with um, Pakistan. Pakistan is not an Arab country. It's not a Middle Eastern country per se. It's a South Asian country. Yeah. Um, but uh, you can't disengage from what happens there. Uh, what happens there from to, to what happens in the rest of the world? You and I could be in Tokyo in less than 24 hours eating sushi. Um, but, you know, the idea that we can get from any point in the world to any other point in the world in less than 24 hours, that we can immediately be there, that we can uh, connect, communicate in five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty different ways with anyone anywhere in the world brings with it remarkable opportunities, but also remarkable perils. We as a human race are just crunched together in a way that we've never been before. And we have the opportunity for the next generation and generations and hundreds of years to be generations of unparalleled peace and prosperity and interconnectedness and global harmony. But we also have the danger that if we don't take the opportunity, it could be some of the worst world war uh, and global crisis and catastrophe of apocalyptic proportions that we have not seen uh, before. I think that uh, it's always very interesting to me looking at the earth, from looking at pictures of the earth from space. And people always comment on how beautiful the earth looks and how how, be- how beautiful and, and, and fragile she looks and all of that. What's stunning to me is actually not the earth in that image. It's the expanse hmm. surrounding the earth. It's that endless swath of universe that surrounds the earth. I mean, it seems to me that the people taking the picture are not in the spaceship, but the earth itself is the spaceship. We're all on this very small, relatively small, fragile spaceship together. 
And it's important, it's vital that we all get along. It's vital that we all respect one another. It's vital that we don't engage in um, endless competitions on how to best defend one another and, and tick each other off. It's vital that we respect the ship that is carrying us, that we respect our environment. I mean, seeing the fragility of Mother Earth is really a wake-up call and should be a wake-up call of this global and digital age. I mean, we didn't have these pictures a hundred years ago. Mm. So all of this new knowledge brings with it unparalleled opportunity, but also unparalleled danger. Now, I should also say... <coughs> that I believe not only that because we have access to knowledge and we have access, we're empowered by this, that the future will be a more peaceful one. I also have a less idealistic reason to believe that. Uh, we are connected to weapons that the world has never seen before. We have the mutually assured destruction of all of humanity, all but guaranteed if we decide to use any of these weapons. Um, I think that from a real politique perspective, human beings have a survival instinct. And I think they may come to the brink. They may come very close, uncomfortably, unnecessarily to the brink. But I don't think we'll go over the brink, Krista, mm. because I think that we believe we, we have a survival instinct and that kicks in. And I think that once we start to connect to one another in a more meaningful, deep way. And that's where poetry comes in. That's where music comes in. Mm. That's where culture yeah. comes in. If you want to make war with me, you have to dehumanize me. You can't dehumanize me. You can't dehumanize me if you love my music, if you love my mm. culture, mm. if you love my poetry. It's so much more difficult to do that. Here's something really beautiful that you wrote along those lines. Um, Music has accompanied humanity from the very start of our journey, and it has been intertwined with human society ever since. The idea of separating music from the aspirations of society is artificial to me. Um, Beyond the basic utilitarian uses for music in our cultures, to march off to war, sing when the crops are brought in, serenade one's loved ones, rock a child to sleep with a lullaby, there is an inherent storytelling aspect to music that is linked to the past and future of every society. Absolutely. I think that the concept of, an, of uh, music for the sake of music or art for the sake of art is not only a new concept, I think it's also a pretentious concept. I mean, when you say, well, people ask me, why don't you just write music for the sake of music? Mm-hmm. My response is not only that it's uninteresting to me, but my response is also that music has accompanied human civilization. It's been uh, an essential uh, storytelling element that keeps, again, the tribe alive, keeps the identity of the tribe alive. Music and poetry are inextricably linked to our humanity. And so I'm not interested in separating music from that just to aggrandize my own cleverness or whatever as a composer. I think I need to be communicating with people. I need to be talking to people. I need to be moving people. The days of classical music are over. The days of elitism in art are over. 
the, the days where artists speak over people's heads and then claim that they're more clever and more special than the people who don't understand what we're saying are over. Yeah. You have to speak to your audience. Isn't it interesting, you know, and I'm going to say this as, a, as an and rather than a but, that, you know, a follow poet is, with this, with this album, you become the youngest composer to record a full album for Deutsche Grammophon, which is this iconic 115-year-old classical label. I, mean, I think that speaks to evolution. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, I think it speaks to a faith in, in the young. Yeah. I think it speaks to, to, to um, hopefully what's being said in the music. And I think, as I said, I mean, the, this uh, album is the result of the work of many, many people yeah. who all sort of unified their vision and believe in something. I mean, believe in something that's bigger than themselves. We believe in something that's bigger than ourselves. whether it's myself or Elizabeth or David, our producer, whoever. It's believing, we all believe that Someone who listens to this may be moved. It may affect them. It may move them to do something good in their day or in their hour or in their life. I mean, maybe that's too much to hope for, but if it's a very small percentage of people, it's still better than sitting around and doing nothing. You, you've spoken of, um, of the artist as an agent of hope, which I hear in what you just described again to that question you know to that to that eternal that cynical question that always arises you know to what effect what difference does it make does it change the world well i think that's a very interesting question actually Mm -hmm. and i think that it is a question that's viable what's the point what's the use of poetry what's the use of art and auden actually asks that question i mean in the elegy for yeats which is set to music uh, in my song cycle, Auden-esque, uh, on, on this album, Follow Poet. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have says, those lines? Do you have that in front of you, the follow poet, follow right to oh, the bottom of the uh, night? You know, absolutely not. I don't have the lines in front of me, but I okay. carry the lines everywhere I go. Uh, I I think that you know I carry them in my head. Yeah. Can and, you can you so, say say just say some of that? I, I, well, I think that what's extraordinary about the elegy for Yeats mm-hmm. is that it begins in a very cynical and dark place. He disappeared in the dead of winter. The brooks were frozen. Airports almost deserted. It gets darker and darker and darker. You have this image that could be contemporary Wall Street, but in the importance and noise of tomorrow when the brokers are roaring like beasts on the floor of the bourse and the poor have the sufferings to which they are fairly accustomed. I mean, Mm. all of this stuff. And then he uses this line, and each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom. Cell of himself, sequestered. You know, being sequestered in the cell of yourself. And it gets more and more dark. In fact, then he asks the question and says, for poetry makes nothing happen. He says this. He says this in this poem. For poetry makes nothing happen. It exists in the valley of its making where executives would never want to tamper. And then it goes back to meter. It goes back to the poetry of the elders. 
Earth receive an honored guest. William Yeats is laid to rest. Let the Irish vessel lie emptied of its poetry. These are extraordinary lines that that, that speak of the absolute darkness of Europe on the paroxysm of going over the edge, the world on the brink of war. Mm. He says, in the nightmare of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. Again, sequestration, sequestered, each sequestered, each in his cell. But then at the very bottom of the night, Auden turns all of this around and says, follow poet, follow right to the bottom of the night with your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse, sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. And he goes on and on and on. It's the most extraordinary thing, really. And I thought to myself, well, it's a a once-in-a-lifetime poetic miracle, Mm -hmm. until I was talking to Seamus Heaney. the late uh, uh, poet Seamus Heaney. And he says, you should see my poem Audenesque, very casually one day. And I, <laughs> and I read this, and he goes back to the quatrains, these, this poetic form that Auden was using, and absolutely just rips on, riffs on it virtuosically, beautifully, and somehow manages, memorializing his friend this time, Joseph Brodsky, manages to attain the same, I call it a miraculous transformation, the same miraculous transformation that Auden uh, attained uh, a generation, a couple of generations before. Mm -hmm. Do do you have some of those lines? Well, uh, you know, what's extraordinary (laughs) about the... I have all the lines in my head. I, 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 I have to say... I think memorizing poetry is absolutely vital. It's yeah. absolutely important. Uh, it, it, gives, it gives the poetic tools that one needs to get through life. Uh, but what I was struck by in Seamus' poem was the humor. Mm. He goes, Joseph, yes, you know the beat. Wiston Auden's metric feet marched to it, unstressed and stressed, laying William Yeats to rest. Therefore, Joseph, on this day, Yeats's anniversary, double-crossed and death-marched date, January 28, its measured strains I tread again, quatrain by constrained quatrain, meeting grief and reason out, as you said a poem ought. Now, those lines, that, those words of meeting grief and reason out are the essence of so many poetic traditions, including the ancient Arabic poetic mm, tradition, mm, meeting mm. grief and reason out. Um, and uh, it goes on to memorialize all sorts of, you know, Joseph Brodsky and Seamus Heaney drinking pepper vodka in Western Massachusetts, uh, being in a train in Finland, and so on and so forth. I mean, pepper vodka you produced once in Western Massachusetts uh, with the reading due to start warmed my spirits and my heart, but no vodka, cold or hot, aquavitar, whiskoba, brings the blood back to your cheeks or the color to your jokes, politically incorrect jokes involving <laughs> sex and sect everything against the grain drinking smoking like a train and then he snaps onto that idea of the train the train in a train in finland we spoke last summer happily swapping manuscripts and quips each of us like cracking whips sharpened up and making free and then he remembers the train ride that he took with broad with brodsky 
actually, of all things, refers to Edgar Allan Poe, I believe. I believe in that moment he goes through the nevermore, your, hmm. that wild speed read, nevermore your tilted head, like a deck where mine took off with a mind flash and a laugh, nevermore that rush to pun or to hurry through all yon jammed enjambments piling up as you went above the top. Now, see, that's extraordinary, beautiful, virtuosic language. But what he's saying is, nevermore, my friend, nevermore your jokes, nevermore the pepper vodka, nevermore the politically incorrect jokes. Uh, you know, uh, words can't bring you back. Why am I elegizing you? Right, right. Why am I, why am I writing this poem, which is one of the duty of the, poet or the com- uh, poets or the composers? to eulogize the dead, to memorialize the dead. Why am I doing this? It's absolutely pointless. And he concludes, Worshipped language can't undo damage time has done to you. Even your peremptory trust in words alone here bites the dust. And then he turns it around. Dust cakes still. See Gilgamesh, feed the dead, so be their guest. Do again what Auden said good poets do, bite break their bread. And that's the um, famous reference to Auden's line about poetry being breaking bread with the dead, Mm. the sort of Mm. round table Mm. in the pantheon of the immortals. Mm. Um, I would also like to talk about your Poems and Prayers album, your your Mm. third symphony. and I, you know, I always ask this question when I start, and I didn't, I didn't do it for some reason. Was was there a religious or a spiritual background to your childhood? Uh, you know, uh, other than understanding um, Islam and uh, having understood and 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 in a way appreciating now my parents' liberal view of Islam that so many people share, that the vast majority of Muslims share. Um, It wasn't anything that was absolutely central, but it was a part of my childhood, for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. So so when you wrote this symphony, this Poems and Prayers, you you actually steeped in um, uh, the poetry and statecraft of Israel as well as Palestine, I'd say ancient and modern. You know, as you wrote this music, mm-hmm. um, and I just—I'd be curious about what you learned in that, how that may have changed you, imprinted the person and the composer you were after that. Well, the um, poems and prayers engages in the mess. It's my third symphony. Engages in the mess of the Middle East, and by mess, I mean it's really about the the uh, the the fact that the Middle East, the Arab world, um, the history of the Middle East, um, the Assyrians, the Jews, the Phoenicians, the Israelites, the Philistines, the Egyptians, and so on and so forth, is not a prefix meal. It's actually much more complex and much more interesting and much more varied than that. I mean, archaeologists may like to say, well, here you have the Philistines and here you have the Babylonians and here you have this, this, but they all intermixed and intermingled. And in fact, you know, it's interesting when you look at um, 
this um, barbaric uh, group, uh, ISIS, I like to call them Daesh because they don't like that name. And that's the Arabic acronym for them. That's what people call them, yes. Uh, And they they actually went in and started an assault on the common heritage of all humanity, but especially of the Arab world, in destroying the Assyrian and Babylonian sites. But one of the things I was reminded uh, of when I was was watching this terrible destruction take place uh, was the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, and reading in the in the in, in Gilgamesh, uh, this idea, this story of a man who created a great ark and who set sail as the world flooded in, in an, uh, under apocalyptic rising waters, and saved uh, the species, the varied species of the earth. And I was not reading the story of Noah; I was reading Gilgamesh, and this happened. A thousand years. It was written a thousand years between b- before the Old Testament story of Noah. So it's interesting how all of the cultures in that part of the world intermingle and interweave. Yeah. Palms and prayers intermingles them uh, in an interesting way. It starts with the Aramaic Kaddish, Yit Gadal Yit Kaddash um, which is has acquired connotations of being the Jewish prayer for the dead. But it also sets the poetry of Fadwa Tukan. Uh, she was considered the poetess of Palestine, one of the greatest poets in Arabic right, literature. Right. And in fact, Arab schoolboys and schoolgirls throughout the latter part of the 20th century uh, were required to memorize her poetry. And so, was this something uh, that you knew before, or is it something you learned as you created this? No, work? it was something I knew before. Uh-huh, it was okay. something I knew before, huh. and and uh, uh, also the poetry of Mahmoud Darwish. Yes, and then of course the poet, oh. the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, and yes. then the great Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai. Right. And interestingly enough, all of the linguistic similarities come about as well. You know, Fadwa Tukan saying, "In this day, fi had al yom, yom being in Arabic." word for day um, and Yehuda Amichai beginning memorial day for the war dead Yom Zikaron Limite Hamil Chama in Hebrew um, the linguistic similarities the similarities of theme the similarities of culture and then you go of course to the part that, that part of the world the similarities of food the similarities of expression the similarities of yeah. and you realize of course I've said this before that this is a family fight right <laughs> and family fights, unfortunately, I mean, it's, uh, you know, people say, well, why would you whitewash it by saying, oh, no, I undermine it by saying it's a family fight? Family fights are the most aggressive Or the of hardest, yes, the most brutal, yes. We've all been through that. I mean, yeah. family fights are, you know, we... Yeah. I guess I also just want to point at what you're what you're describing, which is immersing in, you know, use this language of statecraft, which is kind of, which I, I like that. It's, it's kind of, but it's kind of, it's kind of an old fashioned term. It's kind of a formal term. Oh, is it? Um, and, but you are, you are coming at all the things we talk about when we talk around, you know, statecraft by way of music and poetry and then f- making new, making fresh observations. Um, well, I mean, I think that statecraft is actually, um, I'm sorry to hear that it's an old-fashioned word. Um, I think it's a formal I word, think, I guess, I mean. Yeah. Well, I think it's a wonderful word. Yeah. 
I think that, uh, and I think that uh, I've been so fortunate in my life to have spent time in the diplomatic circles and in the foreign service circles, and to actually appreciate um, what great diplomats put at stake in order to do the work that they do, in order to talk to one another, in order to get sit down around a table and actually prevent military action. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I think that, and and so when I when I look at the way that great statesmen, whether it's uh, you know um, Arnold Rafel or Prince Turkiel Faisal, or I mean, great statesmen use language in order to bring people together. Uh, I'm filled with a sort of poetic admiration, mm. of course, mm. and I think that it's very very interesting, actually that uh, the line between the arts and statecraft is not so, uh, you know, it's not, it's, not as, it's, it's not as far away as you might think. It's not as far away as one might think. Um, the line between fiction and realism, fiction and hyper-realism, is, I mean, that's not a very expansive border. I mean, I'm now working on two operas with two different writers, uh, and I was sort of meditating on this, and I found it extraordinary that both of them have a background in journalism, and both of them turned to fiction, turned to writing novels, because they found that they could tell the truth in fiction <laughs> right, right. more than they could in in. Uh, um, yeah. In uh, in journalism, yeah. and and both of them coming from different angles. I mean, David Ignatius being in Beirut at the time that the U.S. embassy exploded, losing his friends, going and trying to report on it, being told you can't report on this, and creating that novel uh, Agents of Innocence, and starting uh, you know just as a way to express himself. Mohammed Hanif. On the other hand, started, you know, I want to investigate the death of Zia al-Haq and I want to, you know, find out who killed him in that. And, he, and, and like any young journalist, this is going to be my big story. This is going to be the one that really makes my career. He couldn't find it out. And so he wrote a novel, melded all of the conspiracy theories. And then what's very interesting about that is he tells me that he goes to a party um, one evening, and and one of the senior members of the ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, comes to him and says, uh, "My boy, you've written a wonderful novel, but tell me who are your sources?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. and it's an extraordinary thing. And he said, "I said, how did that make you feel?" And he says, "Well, it scared me because these are the people who are running my country, mm. and they believe my fiction as reality." Mm. Mm. <laughs> so it's not a wide gap. It really is not a wide gap. I mean, uh, sometimes truth is 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 just truth. Mm. Um, you made reference in in a piece you wrote for the New York Times to the increasing cosmopolitanism of the musical world in which we find ourselves, and I wonder if that's something you've experienced. Um, to be to be uh, to be unfolding even in your lifetime, your rather short lifetime. Did you s- 
You mean the musical cosmopolitanism? The co- yeah, the increasing cosmopolitanism. Do you find that to be expanding now? Absolutely. You, absolutely. you, you feel like it's happening in real time and you're in the middle absolutely. of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's happening mm-hmm. in real time, not only in music, but in the world in right. general. Right, right. world is, everything is becoming more cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to Dubai and you hear what, how many languages spoken in one day, 50, 60 languages spoken in one day, that city didn't exist 40 years ago. The idea of the cosmopolis becoming the new center of the world. Um, and of course, you know, they built the tallest building in the world, which sort of creates this Babel-like overtone. Again, fiction and fact in interacting um, uh, rather seamlessly. Cosmopolitanism is absolutely taking over. I think that, you know, in the, in the future, even on a very simple level, I mean, people are marrying other people from further away, creating families. I think that gap is going to become larger and larger. And I think that, you know, in, in, in the future, I really do think we're looking at a future, if we continue on this trend, where race and, uh, and uh, different, I mean, everything becomes sort of more unified and seamless. I think that that's, that's the... The, the future that we're looking at. And I guess I'm, I'm curious about, you know, how this manifests in, in, the, um, in the, you know, the musical world, to use that, that language of your, of, of, of your words. Um, is the musical world also, let's say, becoming, as it were, more multilingual? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that in general it's becoming less. I mean, every every aspect of life is becoming less racist. I mean, racism is is becoming less acceptable than it was a hundred years ago. Let's say so. While you know, a hundred years ago, it may have been acceptable for someone to go and listen to a guy playing the ektara and uh, singing Sindhi melodies and say. Uh, oh, that's not music. That's nothing. <laughs> Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn or music. That's not acceptable anymore. I mean, you have to actually just actually accept music on the basis of merit rather than ethnicity or culture. And so everything, some things. And in, indeed, I mean, it's come to a point where we realize that, um, you know, uh, some songs by Freddie Mercury are just as good in all parts as a, any song by Schubert, and that you know uh, Beethoven is not does not reign supreme, and this idea of the holy German art form, the Heilige Deutsche Kunst, <laughs> right. doesn't really yeah. exist anymore. And so it, they're just players in the world. Beethoven is just a player in the world with Ravi Shankar. Uh, Schubert is just a player in the world with uh, you know um, the guy singing on the ektara. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's again and and and. Haydn is just a player in the world with Freddie Mercury. I mean, it's it's become, uh, you know, we've we've be, we've we've become a lot less, you know, it's become a lot less pretentious. Now, having said all of that, I think that the so-called classical institution, music institution, has a while to go, and they're catching up. They're making all the efforts that they that they think they can make. They have to do more. They have to do more to engage an audience that is just not the same audience. And for to do that, they have to play more than dead white men. 
Mm-hmm. They have to become they they have to become more inclusive of different races and more inclusive of different ethnicities, more inclusive of different of women composers. I mean, for goodness sakes, they have to you know they have a ways to go, but they are making the effort. Uh, and yeah, I think yeah. that and you are a I reflection that of that. <laughs> Your story is is part of that story. Well, I think my story could not have happened a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. A composer like myself would not have been possible a hundred years ago. So I think that, yes, in itself is uh, is promising. You have drawn an interesting analogy between, let's say, you know, this frontier we're on of living in a globalizing world um, and yet identity being as vital and essential a thing as ever before, in some ways coming into relief, you know. Um, you, you, you've, you, um, you, you, you wrote this. One of my great mentors, Edward Said, borrowed the term counterpoint from music and applied it to critical thought in politics and in society as a way for cultures to exist in a tapestry of counterpoint without any culture giving up its individual sense of beauty, but contributing to the greater whole. I mean, you often in your music use contrapuntal forms to, you know, multiple melodic lines um, that have their independence, but but make up one piece of music. I'm I'm not sure if I'm saying that very eloquently, but it does seem to me a very useful analogy for where we are as societies as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, the world has to exist in counterpoint. I mean, in order to understand this, um, it's very important to understand the musical concept of counterpoint. And the musical concept of counterpoint is very is very simple, actually. You have a melody or a tune, okay, and it's beautiful. And then you have another melody or a tune and another one. And you put them all together and play them simultaneously, you know, like singing Row, 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 Your Boat and Cannon. And instead of each individual melody losing anything by being combined as a whole, it becomes like a wonderful tapestry, a tapestry where each of these individual threads doesn't lose its meaning, doesn't lose its identity, doesn't lose its own raison d'etre, its own reason for being, but contributes to the whole tapestry of counterpoint. Mm-hmm. So if we see the world as a tapestry of counterpoint, not hegemony of one line or one culture over another mm-hmm. or domination or anything like that, but a, 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 um, a tapestry of counterpoint. Also not I, necessarily harmonic or not always, right? You know, perhaps again and again harmonic, but not continuously um, no, because I mean, imagine a, uh, a a piece of music of endless harmony. What could be more boring? <laughs> yeah. Um. I is there anything that I haven't um, brought up? Any piece of music? Any idea that feels connected to all these things we've been talking about? Something that's on your mind to say or to to add into this? I don't think so. I mean, I think you, you've been a joy to talk to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I wonder, I wanna, you know, I often will 
will think of at the end of a conversation like this about asking, you know, it, through the life you've lived, through the work you've done, how has your sense evolved? You know, how would you speak now about what it means to be human? I feel like for you that, and that is the question I want to ask, but I'm going to just add some more, you know, nuance to that. I mean, you know, you know, it's to be, you know, you're very, you have this keen awareness of the fact that we live in a post 9-11, post Tahrir Square, globalized, technologized, 21st century world, you know. What, what for you at this point in your life would you say, what does it mean to be human and a musician at this moment in time? Well, I think that um, music uh, and poetry, the arts, do something that is very, very special in that they allow us access to a rarefied space, a sacred space almost. Uh, They take us beyond the 9-11s, beyond the Tahrir Squares, beyond Facebook and Twitter and all of this stuff. They allow us to reach beyond the day-to-day. They allow us to reach beyond the muddle present and in a way to touch something that is timeless and eternal and I think an immortal. And I think that that is the, the essence of what we do what we're privileged to do as artists. Well, um, this is quite beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I'm I'm thinking as we're speaking about the joy it will be to produce your voice and a conversation in interplay with music, uh, with music and text as you bring it into music. Um, So I'm just really glad to meet you and grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much, Krista, for having me on the show. Yeah. We will will be in touch with you about, you know, production and how this works. Um, We might have some questions. I think you've been in touch with Lily or um, your colleagues have. So thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.